Simon Deakin, Professor of Law, Cambridge University. Professor Simon Deakin, Director of the Corporate Governance Research Programme, the Centre for Business Research, Cambridge University. Thanks for talking to our podcast series today. We're looking at low pay, a topical issue in the economy at the moment. Is it a problem or would it encourage growth and more companies to employ people? Well, it's a problem for families and for workers if they're not earning enough to live on. If, if that's the case, if, if people don't get a living wage, then what happens is a state has to make up the difference. So then it's also a problem for the government and it's a problem for public finances because wage subsidies are being paid to top up low incomes. Now, firms may benefit in the sense that firms sometimes highly profitable firms are benefiting from this arrangement and maybe the shareholders benefit but let's be clear that they're benefiting directly at the expense of all of us who pay our taxes and in particular they're benefiting at the expense of low-paid workers. If we take the minimum wage and the living wage both conservative politicians and Labour politicians have been commenting a lot on that recently I mean does the minimum wage guarantee people a certain standard of living or or do we need to increase it to the level of the the living wage. How do we go about explaining the difference between the two? Well, the Council of Europe has a decency threshold which says that people should receive something like two-thirds of the median wage. Now, the minimum wage in this country is well below that. It's more like 40-45% somewhere in the region of 40 to 45% over the last few years. And this has meant that the gap between that 40% or so and the 66% or so that people should be receiving, which is what they need to live on, has been met by the state through tax credits and family credit. Now, the problem here is that because the, the minimum wage is well below the living wage, there are problems involved in wage subsidisation, which makes a very expensive system for the government to run. Why have they put up with this? Basically because of fears that a high minimum wage would cause unemployment because employers would be less willing to hire workers. Now, there are two answers to that. But One, that didn't happen when we introduced the minimum wage. Part, there were fears then, in, in yeah. 1997. Right. Part, partly because the minimum wage was kept low. Right. So the Low Pay Commission took economic advice. Uh, the commission c- consisted of, uh, in some cases, academic experts who were economists who were experts on this. And they advised and the Commission took the advice, and the Ministers also took this advice, that the minimum wage should be kept at a fairly low level to begin with, although it did rise well above wage inflation for for most of the period after it was introduced, this initial period. So the the minimum wage has been very important in stopping a further decline in wages, and it did lead to above inflation wage increases for the low paid, but it was never designed to be a living wage, so it was complementary to tax credits, and these tax credits increased during the period of the Labour government as they had previously been increasing, during the Conservative government, which was in office before 1998, when the minimum wage came in. Now, the minimum wage has therefore reduced the burden on the state of paying wage subsidies, but it hasn't done so to an adequate degree. Now, we may have had less unemployment as a consequence of this set of policies, because introducing a high minimum wage in 1998, when there hadn't been one in force for several years, since the early 1990s, could well have been a shock which which would have led to reduced employment. That argument doesn't work now, because employers have had over 10 years, they've had 14 or 15 years since 1998 to get used to the idea of a minimum wage. And many of them are also now signing up to the living wage. So the idea that a living wage can't be paid because it would be a shock to the economy is no longer adequate. So we could afford, as an economy, even in recession, to pay workers a living wage? We could absolutely afford it, because to a large extent it's self-financing, because it means the government has to pay out less by way of wage subsidies.
Yeah. This leads us on to the research published recently by the Resolution Foundation and the Institute for Public Policy Research that found gross earnings would rise by 6.5 billion if employers were paid a living wage and that paying UK workers a living wage would save the Treasury more than 2 billion a year by boosting income tax receipts and reducing welfare spending. So clearly you're not surprised by those findings. No, I, th I think it's very important to have this research. It's clarified a number of things. But I th we, we've known this since the, at least since the late 1980s when this debate began. Now, I, I think what's striking about the, the turn the debate has taken is that at least the principle of the minimum wage is accepted now. It wasn't accepted in, in late 1980s when this debate was beginning. And increasingly, there's a realisation that a living wage will be, to, to a certain extent, self-financing and will also bring other benefits. It will do two things. It will require employers, both in the public sector and the private sector, to be more efficient in the way they use labour and to train labour better. It will also mean that there's a better work-life balance for families where low-income earners are currently often doing two or three jobs just to make ends meet and finding it very difficult to maintain that kind of working pattern and also meet their family time commitments. Yeah, because that's been very topical. Police officers doing two jobs has been in the news recently. We've got one party, you know, suggesting everybody's work shy and people are going to work while others are asleep behind closed blinds. And then mm. uh, Ed Miliband for the Labour Party countering this with mm. saying that people are double shifting like the police officers and mm. coming home to draw on curtains and going to work to draw on curtains. So two very polarised views. But as a mm. professor of law as the director of the corporate governance research program the center for business research cambridge university evidence-based policy what does the evidence show in terms of if we were to raise the minimum wage to the living wage would it lead to a loss of jobs is it bad for an economy already deep in trouble and heading for perhaps a triple dip recession what does the evidence tell us, Professor Deacon? Well, the, the most productive economies in the world, Northern European and Nordic economies, either have high minimum wages or they have collective agreements which set basic minimum rates of pay at a fairly high level, which provide the right incentive structure for investment by both workers and firms in high productivity, firm-specific skills. Now, a minimum wage has to be coupled with other policies, so it has to be coupled with an active labour market policy and with a commitment from firms, backed up by the government, to train their workers. So a minimum wage doesn't work on its own. It's necessary, but not sufficient, if we want to have a high-wage, high-productivity economy. But if we want to join or rejoin the North European mainstream, if we want to be more like highly successful economies like Germany and Finland and Sweden, that's what we should be aiming to do. So we shouldn't be going down to this low-wage, easily hired, easily fired economy in the name of social entrepreneurship and growth in the economy. If we go down that path, it's basically a vicious cycle. If, if we say we have to cut out-of-work benefits to provide incentives to work and we're also not maintaining a living wage, it just becomes counterproductive because people aren't given the right incentives to seek work. And it's degrading and often humiliating and also very time-consuming and wasteful for people to be making continuous applications rather to get family credit and tax credit. It's also costly for the government to organise this system when it would be much simpler for it to be done through the wage system and through the tax system. Now, now, under these circumstances, to say that we don't need a living wage is basically to condemn us to being a low-wage, low-productivity economy for the foreseeable future. So it's really no way forward, either for the economy or for the government, and nor for the families. So if we had to look to a headline in 2013 in a broadsheet British UK newspaper, what would you like that headline to be in terms of a good policy in terms of the living wage? 
living wage can be the basis for a high wage, high productivity economy, and essentially it's, it's, it's a win-win situation. And we could compete with the BRICS and the emerging economies in Brazil too? We certainly can't compete with them by continuing to cut wages at the bottom and by dismantling parts of the welfare state. If we do that, then we're, we're essentially going backwards. When those economies are going forwards, they're building social insurance systems, they're building wage determination systems, they're accepting the principle of the living wage, they're dealing with informality in employment, they're heading in one direction. We don't want to be heading in the opposite direction. So it's a paradox. We're, if you like, deconstructing our state while they're reconstructing, modelling theirs on ours. They're, they're modelling their economic progress on something that we used to believe in. We used to believe in effective regulation of the labour market and a social security system that guaranteed effective insurance against labour market risks. Now, if we haven't abandoned that, but we're, we're heading in a direction where it's more difficult to maintain it. It's difficult to know why that's happening, uh, but it's partly driven by ideology. It's partly driven by false analysis of, of the situation and by a misreading or simple, simple willful blindness towards the evidence. Professor Simon Deacon, Director of the Corporate Governance Research Programme, the Centre for Business Research, Cambridge University. Thanks for talking to our podcast series today, and we'll watch the headlines with interest. Thank you, Bonnie. This is a podcast from the Corporate Governance Research Programme, the Centre for Business Research, Cambridge University. Go to www.cbr.cam.ac.uk to find out more.